this is the Baileys. When that boat went round the headland, out of sight, I was just like, that was probably our only chance. And I, this huge wave of terror or panic hit me like, holy shit, what are we actually going to do now? The Bail List is brought to you by Wild Earth Australia, fueling all your adventure dreams with gear meccas on the Gold Coast and now in Brisbane as well. Check them out today and while you're there, get your hands on gear from our other supporter, Awesome Woodies, handcrafted, psych-fueled and sustainably produced training tools to help you crush. Bail List. Hey, I'm Nicole Rolls. We've got a repeat visitor in this episode of The Bail List. Adventure climber and alpinist Hank Morgans is back, baby. You may remember him from episode three, Summit or Plummet. If you haven't listened to it, go and do that, but not right now because we have another cracker yarn coming your way. In this episode, Hank and longtime climbing partner Jade Blunden are taking us to Cape Rao, Tasmania, where they and two mates had their sights set on the sea pillar route Pole Dancer. It should have been a cruisy day out for them, climbing one of the country's best 22s. But an accident went from bad to worse when the party discovered just how remote their location really was. My name's Jay Blunden. Uh, I started climbing back in 2005. Uh, I went to Canada as another Aussie bum snowboarder and then did some intro to rock climbing day outside. I think it was April. There was still ice on some of the rock around, but they took us top roping and I thought this is a pretty cool sport and um, and just hooked in. I was with a great bunch of people and met some people that had climbed more than me and so um, yeah, got into leading that first season and the rock, the rock season in Canada is really narrow. So that finished in September, I think, starting in April. And then I bought ice climbing gear before I'd even tried it, much to my Canadian friend's amazement because they said not many people like ice climbing and ripped through a season of ice climbing and that led to some mountaineering and ski touring and just fell in love with mountains and going up things, whether I'm walking them or climbing them. Um, it's kind of been a fascination since and... And yeah, that's just progressed. I don't know that's what fifteen something years ago now. And yeah, you know, obviously into sport, into trad, mountaineering. Done some great adventures with Hank here, and um, and I've done other things like I, I I've dabbled in dirt biking, and I'll do some done some ultra running. And but I just always keep coming back to climbing. So yeah, it's definitely just part of me after all these years. And um, well, like I said earlier, yeah. Definitely one of the cooler things I did was the trip to NZ with Hank and Duncan and we're all kind of, while I was getting to know them, they knew each other pretty well. But yeah, we, we ticked off four mountains in about six and a half days and I've never been so shattered after we came home. Uh, yeah, and then still, I'm having a great sport climbing season and um, Hank and I got a bit of a plan to go do something on Barney, bit of a, not that it's a first route, but it's an old school route, doesn't get done too much. So yeah, still, still trying to go and do some rad and fun adventures here and there uh so this is my second time here and uh, my name is hank morgans uh i don't know what to say apparently i'm now getting a reputation for being uh no one wants to climb with me 
Uh, I do my best to keep my standards high for safety. Um, but yeah, I think for me personally, I started climbing early 2000s. Um, the sort of general way I went to a gym one time and loved it and then slowly over the next few years went outdoor climbing. Um, I think my main passion is adventure climbing uh, and I think what inspires me to do that is the ability to see new places and challenge my mind and body. Um, I'm not particularly awesome at any one discipline. Um, I just seem to have a great ability to hold on and battle through some of the worst stuff. Um, I wouldn't say my head is often great in terms of I still do get nervous or scared occasionally when I'm running it out quite a ways. Um, but the mindset of keeping it together gets me through so far. Yep. And uh, just a quick uh, bit of trivia on Hank Morgan's as well that I found out recently. You are the current speed record holder on Mount Barney. Uh, yes, I do believe that's true. So at one stage I was super fit and had a point to prove with somebody else. Um, and I went around southeast Queensland collecting um, speed records for summiting mountains as quickly as I can. So, yeah. Well, well, Hank Morgan's back for round two on the bail list, eh? <laughs> yep, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but anyway, here we are. Don't go for three, mate. Oh. And Jade's here as well. Hello, Jade. Well, Carl, how are you? Welcome to the bail list. Your first time here, but mm-hmm. potentially not your last if you're climbing with Hank a fair bit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've climbed with him. He's pretty good. He's pretty good. We'll try not to appear in the nicest of ways. I did say um, when I recorded the first interview with you and Duncan Steele that you guys would single-handedly keep this podcast afloat. So, yeah, here we are for the second one. Very, in all seriousness, though, very happy to have you both here talking about another spicy story. And I should clarify, the only reason why you, you ever you know have these epics is because you're just doing rad shit all of the time. Uh, I mean, yeah, I don't know, like, if it's rad or it's just something we wanted to do. Um, But, yeah, it does seem like it's pretty cool and people love it, so here we are. Yeah, we're giving the people what they want. We're talking about your epic that you had on Pole Dancer down Mm -hmm. in Tasmania. Um, So, first of all, just give me a little bit of a background about um, you guys, how you met, your history of climbing together and also who else was in the party wow <clears throat> um hank and i's can first I... time together climbing was... oh, hang on hang on hang on first time i met jade was in a dark seedy alley at the back of k2 <laughs> and he's just running by and saying oh, i wish i could really come to your movie night but i'm busy um can we catch up another time and i was like wow that's really weird i don't know who this guy is but cool um and then from there we formed a friendship we did, yeah. Oh, and Dale, so one of the other crew who was on um, Pole Dancer that day, and Tommy, who we'll get to. But yeah, Dale was going up Mount Barney, up Logan's Ridge, and invited Hank along. He invited me along, I think, even though he didn't know me. No, either. Tommy invited oh, you. Oh, Tommy was there, that's yeah. right. Yeah, so the four of us, that was our first little adventure, I suppose. 
And then that was in like November, I think. And then late that year, um, around New Year's, I flew to New Zealand and the famous Hank and Duncan did as well. And the first time we all tied in together, we climbed Mount Cook, which was pretty awesome, and, and a bunch of other mountains. So, yeah, that's where we kicked off early 2015. Yep. And then, yeah, they've done a bunch of fun adventure stuff since. Yeah, and then uh, 2016 was when you flew down to Tassie. Mm. Um, tell me a little bit about Pole Dancer and about the area it's in, about access, all that sort of stuff. Okay, well, uh, Pole Dancer wasn't necessarily the prime objective for what we had set out to do. We actually planned to sea kayak between four other... Um, sea pillars? Sea pillars. Mm. But the weather was really bad and we had to change plans. So we ended up having a situation where we chose Pole Dancer um, as a compromise because Dale's a super beast at running and the rest of us really like rock climbing. So there's a good mix between running and adventure. Uh, and I'm not sure if you've seen some of the photos of um, where Pole Dancer is situated, but it's right out the end of a almost like a rocky outcrop that looks like a dinosaur's back and it's quite a mission so it's seven k's from the car to the start of the first abseil and then i don't know i think four or five hours of technical climbing yeah there's, there's, yeah, there's an abseil and a scramble and a couple of trad climbs and a Traverse, and then you get to pole dance of the goal after maybe six or seven hours of, of getting there. So yeah, wow. we kind of chose it because it was like a bit of a mountaineering day. It's you know you got to be a bit fit for the approach, and you got to abseil and climb, and yeah. Yeah, when you say a bit fit for the approach too, because you guys showed me a video that's on YouTube of this little uh, ordeal. You were running in. To, like your approach was a trail run essentially which yeah. for me as someone who like the approach is the very worst part of any climbing expedition was like already my hell my palms were sweating and nothing had even happened yet so for, for us too yeah that's why we run just to get it over and done <laughs> yeah i think um we were all pretty fit back then i think uh the year before dale tommy and i did the world record attempt for the sum eight mission um, so, you know, we we're just pretty fit, so it wasn't really a super huge deal. I mean, we just were keen to get it over and done with and get on with what we set out to do. I mean, you could hike it. I mean, it'd probably take two hours or something like that, but, you know, I don't know. I, so, it's so long ago, the finer details of the timing um, eludes me, but I'd say we ran out in an hour and ten minutes or something like yeah, that. Something like that. And then... I'm not running fast. We're just kind of putting along. It just it just gets you there a bit quicker, really. So, yeah. Okay. Well, I'll allow it. Um, <laughs> and so the approach to get into pole dancer is you're saying like seven hours, but then we're no seven kilometers. Oh, seven k's. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was like no, no, maybe yeah. about six okay. hours to the climb. Yeah. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Um, and where is it uh, actually geographically in Tassie? So everyone's familiar with. Port Arthur, um, you know, and that sort of area. It's on a cape called Cape Raoul. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think. <laughs> and it's at the very end of that pillar. So it's basically feels like when you get out there, 
that you're actually in the ocean and there's not much else around like mm. it's pretty remote and it definitely feels like you're a long way from anywhere and it's you, true you, you are, are. <laughs> yeah. yeah and what drew you to that um you know you're saying it's not the primary objective of the trip what made you end up there it does have the reputation of being australia's best 22 mm. i think it's been on the cover of the climbing mag it's on the cover of there's a a history of Tasmanian climbing it's on the cover of that like it's a really iconic iconic climb and is just stunning like yeah if you, anyone sees a photo of a pole dancer if you're not a bit inspired to climb it I'd be surprised it just looks amazing yeah yeah it's epic it mm. just looks so exposed and you know beautiful but also yeah super super wild mm. um and and what's the style it's a sport climb itself, like, yeah, a well-bolted 22 in the wildest place you could imagine, yeah, but uh, no, it's it's a great sport climb. That's amazing. I would mm. have thought it would be, uh, yeah, a, tra- a trad route. Mm. I, well, should, I should preface this by saying I don't know a whole lot about this story. Uh, <laughs> Ross from Awesome Woody is one of our amazing supporters, sent me a message saying, you know, Hank and a bunch of guys had an epic and I knew because it was Hank that it was going to be a spicy story. So I was like, let's do it. So I just showed up here and I'm coming in cold. Can, can I just say to anyone who's listening that I'm not reckless and careless. It's just that I spend a lot of time doing rad stuff apparently. Yeah. And, and the numbers are unfortunately stacked against you when you participate in so much <laughs> activity yeah odds are you're gonna have an epic at some point if you're pushing the boundaries yep. yeah i don't want to i i don't want to create any misconceptions <laughs> no, <laughs> otherwise you'll have no climbing partners yeah no, it's short yeah. for anyone else listening out there i would tie in with hank on any mountain around the world no he's he's super safe and awesome so but yeah it, that's exactly it law of averages you keep doing this stuff and something might go sideways one day and and it did a bit yeah yeah, so you're all obviously um, extremely competent. You've done mountaineering. Um, you've done a lot of, um, you know, very ambitious objectives successfully. Um, so, you know, what was your sort of, what was your sort of plan going into it? Did Were you nervous about it in any way? Is it a high risk objective? I guess as a sport climb, potentially, maybe not. I think from my side, it- it was kind of like just like another day at the office really like shouldn't have been anything too dramatic I don't think mm. on some of the bigger events that I've done I've always had broken sleep like nervous or worried or had trouble going to sleep I don't think I worried at all it was kind of just a normal day out really it was like a couple of trad 18s and a few long run out sort of hiking slash ridge climbing and yeah and the route description just sounded fun. Like, yeah, I would totally back that up. Yeah. Yeah. We'd been trying to go to sleep a few nights earlier on New Year's Eve to the sound of gunshots in some remote Tassie town. That yeah. that was a nervous broken sleep. But no, before this was, it was fine. It was just a rad adventure we were looking forward to do. Okay, we'll put a pin in the gunshots. <laughs> Maybe that's another story for another time. Um, right, so uh, take me through how the day kind of started. You, you ran in. So I think we started 4.30 in the morning in Hobart. We drove the two hours out to the car park. 
pretty much had all of our stuff ready to go. Yeah. I imagine we would have left 6.30 sort of thing. And these numbers are loose in my mind, so if I missed it by half an hour or whatever, so be it. Um, ran out, hour, hour and ten, something like that. And then we made a decision to only take two packs, um, which freed up the leader to not have a pack while leading. And we left Tommy and my pack at the start of the abseil. And we abseiled in because mm-hmm. we had all our gear on us then and we didn't need any more backpacks. And the few minutes after we pulled the rope for the abseil, we knew we were kind of committed uh, and we were going for it. But that's when I remembered that the EPIRB was in my backpack at the top of the abseil and we had a discussion about would we take it or should I go, go back? back? Yeah. And we all just kind of agreed like, well, we're sweet, you know, we know where we are, we're, we're not doing anything too crazy. And we had a couple um, of mobile phones on yeah, us too. Yeah, so... Oh, and we, we didn't pull the rope, we left it because you got a Juma around. Yeah. But, but yeah, it's just, it was a bit painful... We could have done it. And like you said, we had a discussion and we're like, let's be careful. Got a couple of phones. Should be right. Should be right. Just to jump in for those unfamiliar, just describe what Jumaring is. Jumaring is... Yes, you'll go. Yeah. yeah. But essentially using um, Jumars, it's just like a rope clutch. So it's a way to ascend a rope um, without just trying to grip hand over hand. Um, so yeah, it's just a nice little tool that's got a little grabber on it essentially slide it up the rope when you're pulling it it grabs you get a couple of them in between your hands and your feet you can just ascend a rope so um and yeah that the abseil that you do in is a little bit overhanging hence you've got to juma your way out so oh right mm. yeah so you actually got to carry a rope to attach and leave there for the day and then you carry a climbing rope to go do pole dancer so yeah mm. but yeah we sort of cut our gear down from four packs to two and crammed a bit in and like i think said that just freed up a couple of people to not have to carry a pack. We could just share the loads as we went. And there was some trad climbing on the way in to get to Pole Dancer, is that right? Yeah. Mm. There's two pitches. Both of them are 18s. Um, and they are beautiful lines in themselves. I think the rock quality isn't amazing in terms of it's a exposed coastal sea cliff. Um, but it's relatively strong. Like I wouldn't have not trusted the gear. Um, but I don't. I don't know. Twenty meters each, something like that. Yeah. Like, yeah. They're, they're they are both awesome climbs just within themselves. The second one, which I, I can't remember the name, Reign of Terror, I think it's called, is just awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So they're really good climbs. So you're essentially doing like a traverse. You're going up one side of a pillar, going down the other sort of out into the ocean to get to this ultimate objective, yeah. which uh-huh. is pole dancer. I keep yeah. wanting to say stripper pole, but it's pole dancer. <laughs> you can it's getting, call it what you'd like. Getting yeah. way too saucy. <laughs> um, yeah, and um, so tell me what happened when you got out to pole dancer. Well, we didn't quite get to pole dancer, which is probably getting to some of the crux of the story. Oh, right. Hmm. So yeah, we did the two eighteen pitches, and then you traverse. So Hank described it really well, like a dinosaur's back. And there's a, there's actually a pitch called the Stegosaur pitch. So a bit of a the clues in the name. So yeah, you traverse along, 
you abseil down, you scramble around the other side of the cliff and then you pop up um, in a little gap in the pillars and then you've got a, I think it's it's got a grade of eight or something or other, this traverse pitch called the Stegosaur pitch. And um, and yeah, that's where somewhere along the line we, we had our epic sort of begin. So <clears throat> the four of us are sitting at the belay. The Stegosaurus pitch is 50 metres long. And it's basically just a hike with a small amount of climbing at one stage. Tommy was pretty keen to do that and he pretty much raced off. As he was leaving, the wind picked up and rain came through. Um, And we were just sitting in this sheltered area just kind of feeding the rope out as he's traversing along. And after about 10 metres, you can't see him. He goes behind a pillar and so you just feeding the rope out and you know it's just like easy climbing so you just leave it relatively loose and was he putting gear in he was weaving between the rocks and putting gear in yeah so sort of a bit more of an alpine approach yeah yeah and like hank said yeah it's it's a very easy traverse sometimes you can just walk some of it you know hence hence it's really low grade um and yeah, some gear and, and also, yeah, there's wind, the waves are crashing and there's a seal colony down below on the sort of eastern side of the Cape. So you also within 10 metres, you can't possibly communicate either, you know. So, um, But yeah, he had it off and then once the rope hit about halfway, um, I remember you just held it in a bit and I tied in midway on an alpine butterfly and then I headed off on belay just managing as well the speed we're moving along so two of us are kind of traversing on lead now what was the reason for doing that as opposed to i mean i guess it would be hard to pull the rope right once you yeah kind of that but we otherwise we probably would have had three of us all at the end of the rope so just to get us all to the other end of the rope where tom is going to end up near pole dancer uh, we just thought we'd sort of space ourselves through the rope by tying in midway and we would only do that on very easy terrain, which it was, you know. So essentially kind of simul climbing, I suppose, attached to, you know, one rope. Just explain that, what simul climbing is. So essentially you've got, instead of a belayer <clears throat> belaying a leader, and there's only one person on the move, in simul climbing, both of you, or in this case, well, yeah, two of us were on the, on the move here. And you just make sure there's gear in between you as you're moving. So essentially it speeds up the... The belaying and pitching out process you just get to move continuously through the way probably should say if anyone's going to think about doing simul climbing mm. they need to be absolutely sure they're not going to be falling because uh, that can be devastating yeah it it's a technique they use for setting speed records most of the time on mm. nose and things like that but it's super super risky yeah. Mm. Yeah. See uh, the nose speed record, which I think was in Real Rock a couple of years ago with Alex Honnold and um, Brad Gobride and other people who I can't remember. Tommy Caldwell. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a perfect example of when you yeah. know people would use it, or in a sort of more of an alpine setting, yeah. like yeah, what you sure. guys were the kind of techniques that you guys were using. Mm. Yeah. It's pretty common for moving across glaciers and you know mountaineering and things like that. So. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of like advanced scrambling, I suppose, you know, what we were doing. Um, yeah, so <clears throat> I was following along behind Tom, but couldn't see him or hear him because there's pillars and he's weaving in and out. Um, and yeah, I was just climbing along a section of the Stegosaur pitch. 
and I felt the rope jerk a bit tighter on me and I and I instantly thought I was like oh I he might have fallen then um didn't but wasn't super savage and because the, the gear was weaving in and out through pillars and through some bits of trad gear he'd placed there wasn't a, a lot of um dynamic yeah force. sort of dynamic force on me so yeah it was I was fine but I was like oh just noticed a bit of a tug on the rope and and I was now out of earshot of Hank and all of them as well. So <clears throat> I'm not sure if you remember. I assume you just were like, oh, Jade, stop moving. or And then... And then because it would have been for like two minutes though or something. Yeah. Could you feel it? Uh, were you on belay, Hank? Yeah, I was still belaying, I guess, essentially both the boys. Mm. Um, and then I was like, okay, so I'm either sensing that they're both at the anchor and they're just sorting themselves out. But then it took so long, and I was like, mm. and I remember looking at Dale and not saying anything, and then I think you ended up coming back into ear. Maybe shout. I did a little bit. Yeah, you started really yelling, and I was like, <coughs> oh, this is pretty weird. So so you could hear him yelling, but you couldn't really make out what he yeah, was saying? Yeah, it was saying. just like a muffled. And then the way he was yelling, I was like, okay, that's not just safe that's there's a problem and yeah and probably and and so you know we're in different spots here but um so yeah i've got that tension on the rope and you know and i'm like okay that's tom and i don't know what's happened and while some of that was transpiring back there i just that tension didn't go because i was like oh he might have slipped and fallen i assume he'll scramble back up and then i'll feel the rope go a bit slack and he'll he'll be moving again but it was like the, the tension hasn't changed for two minutes and you know Tom's a super strong competent climber so I was a little bit like mm, I don't know what's going on you know I was like I hope it's not bad but I, I don't know what's going on it's strange that the tension's still on the rope and so I think while I was yelling out to Hank I also there's a big chalk stone I remember and I had a bit of gear on me too so I managed to get a sling around that and kind of anchor myself and the rope into that because that's my question are mm. you if if there's sort of downward force from tom on that rope does that mean you're essentially trapped because you're tied into the rope or you kind of yeah i was actually on a horizontal kind of just walking bit with like a huge handrail so i i wasn't vertical i was just uh just sort of traversing at the time so a there wasn't much force on on the rope but i knew something had gone on um, so yeah, I was kind of stuck. I couldn't go back to Hank March. I felt a tiny bit of tension come off the rope at one point, which turned out to be Tom wriggling a bit in position where he was. Um, but yeah, in the time it took me to kind of build that anchor and try yelling out a bit, I can't remember whether you would, I think you appeared first. You must've got Dale to belay you along the yeah. rope or you belayed yeah. yourself along the rope. Yeah. I told, just put a prosthetic on and just started... Mm coming across on that same rope yeah we Did only you had only... one rope right because yeah. you left the other one fixed uh-huh. at the start yeah yeah. Mm. yeah and then so i remember i you, you caught up to me and we, i know we would have had a chat just saying well tom might have fallen but i don't know we, yeah we still couldn't hear because there's seals going off and there's quite big seas down there not that you get wet from them on the on the cape but there's a lot of noise um so yeah we we'd anchored the rope on the chalk stone and then with a little bit of slack that was there um i managed to get on my atc my belay device on there so i was kind of like abseiling but along horizontally so i was safe if anything happened to me the rope sort of anchored midway along and i'm letting myself along the the rope 
And I'm yelling out to Tom and I can't hear anything because waves and seals and wind. Um, but then as I made my way along a little bit more, then I heard the first like, help coming mm-hmm. from Tom. Um, and so I yelled out to him whether he could hear me or not. But yeah, I kept making my way along. And then, yeah, at one point I could see the rope go up to a can uh, in a crack and then it went down to somewhere I couldn't see, a ledge somewhere. Um, so I kept letting myself along until I could peer over that edge and then, yeah, that was the first look I got at Tom who was, he was on this maybe like two metre by two metre downsloping ledge um, that had about a 50 metre drop to the seal colony below that. Um, and yeah, I remember looking over and just thinking, well, okay, he must have fallen, like, well, and he looked a bit white, but thankfully he was conscious, like, that was a, maybe speak about that again later, but that was a bit of a game changer for the day, like, our mate was always able to communicate, even though he looked a bit white, and, you know, he's in a bit of shock. Um, so what had happened? Do you want to say that thing? Yeah. Uh... Partially human error, partial just not knowing the route. I think what ended up happening is Tom came to a set of chains, which in hindsight was the wrap station to get down to the ledge that he now was on to move across to where Pole Dancer really begins. Um, But Tom didn't really pick up on what was going on and he's like, oh, well, I'll just keep going until I get... Because the Steg Storis pitch ends at virtually the pole dancer so he's thinking oh i should be able to see the you know what i need to climb so he's just like i'll just go to that and he'd actually climbed past the chain and started climbing up another pillar that isn't normally climbed and it was a like a hand jam he's actually gone to grab a hold and the hold has snapped sending him probably four or five meters down to a a small ledge yeah He's hit that ledge pretty hard and then because of the amount of slack in the traverse and that it's 50 metres long, the stretch and the rope didn't pull him up at all and he fell down to the next ledge down probably like 8 metres from where he fell or something mm. like that, I'd say. I mean, we didn't have a tape measure, so... Um, but yeah, and then he was kind of stuck on this ledge, just jammed himself really hard into this corner. Yeah. Um, was his last piece behind him on the like behind him on the traverse? No, it was he was climbing above this yellow cam that he put in. So yeah, his fall was you know like almost like a traditional fall. It was really mm. lucky that that piece like kind of held because mm. man, that would have been really gnarly if mm. he had gone off of that ledge. Yeah, it would have been. Yeah, yeah he. We sort of figured that. I think he figured, he figures as well that he hit the first ledge pretty much full bore. The second one, I I really suspect the rope took up a fair bit, so he definitely kissed that next ledge, but not at full speed. Um, I think the first one's what did the damage, but yeah, it would have been three or four meters. Just mm. no no rope take up until he until he hit that first ledge. Right, and then another like four meters on essentially oh, rope stretch yeah. to, oh, wow. to the next one. But yeah, on, on rope stretch. So yeah, I don't think that one would have you know damaged him. But uh, yeah, thankfully the rope was taken up by that time. Yeah. So it sounds like it was a pretty tiny ledge. So how did you guys all kind of get down huh. there? Well, I was gonna. Oh, this is you, mate. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, because I was, I was sort of there, like you know, f- first one to see him. Um, the, the obvious question that always comes out of your mouth, like, "Are you right, mate?" <laughs> no. <laughs> and uh, but he said, "Where are we?" And, and I was like, "Oh, he's obviously had a bit of a hit to the head." And I, I said, "Do you know who you're here with?" And he said, "Yeah, you and Hank and Dale." And I said, "Do you know what day it is?" And he's like, "No." And he said, what are we doing here? And I said, oh, we were coming out to climb pole dancer. And he's like, okay. And I think even he had a bit of a moment of like, I should know, but I don't. Um, I built an anchor then and I, we might have even been in earshot. I think Hank was moving along the rope too. So um, he, he'd been putting gear in. I built an anchor and because there was a bit of spare rope around, <clears throat> I was able to quickly abseil down to Tom. I brought Dale over from the belay so that the anchor that Jade originally made, I, I made it better or beasted it up mm. and then brought uh, Dale across because I was like, well, we're probably going to need as much rope as we can and manpower. Yeah. I brought him to there and then once he got there, I think you went down first to have a look mm-hmm. and then I came down on the, the prussic that I was moving along on as well. And <laughs> when we yeah. And the first conversation, poor Tom. So I get down to the ledge and, and I'm like, you know, oh, mate, you know, are you all right? And gave him a hug and, you know, he's a bit ashen-faced and in pain. And he's like, oh, I think I've broken my elbow. And he said, oh, I think I'll shit myself, but I'm going to have to get you to check because it might just be blood or I just don't know. And uh, I was like, all right. <laughs> so I rolled him over and had to, like, peer down his dax. And I was like, yeah, mate, you shit yourself. <laughs> And, uh, way, to and, make, way to make a bad day even worse. Yeah, eh? I did. I mean, there was a lot of to his credit. He laughed in that area as well. Like, it yeah, is, yeah. by the time I got there, it was pretty swollen or yeah, pretty full on. So I think we we set about making an anchor down there as well. So he wasn't going to go anywhere, but we just made it absolutely bomber. So there was a good crack right um, where Tom was. He'd sort of got into a little crevice, but we built a good trad anchor. He was anchored in nice and short. Um, Dale was up in the wind for ages. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was so windy. And I just remember looking up at him and he was just in this fetal position, just shivering. And I'm like, <laughs> you just got to stay there just in case we need you to build something up there. And, um, you know, because he was really the only anchor, like solid anchor we had mm. um, for quite a while until we sorted it out. Um, and he was a champ. I don't know. It might have been 20 or 30 minutes that... Yeah, he was cold. Like, I remember watching his jacket flapping like crazy in the wind because we were a little bit protected, like a little bit. <clears throat> Still windy, but yeah, Dale was just copping a flogging up there. He was so cold. Because um, this is the thing about all of those or a lot of those sea cliffs in Tassie. I'm just trying to remember where you said it was geographically, but it would be basically it's one what, of those cliffs that's, that's the, the first stop after Antarctica, right? Yeah, yeah. and it's in the roaring 40s and... Yeah, there's no landmass on either side. Like you're actually out mm. away from the mainland. So. Yeah, it's that, yeah, that cape is. You're right. It's way out in the sea, and it's not getting. There's no windbreak anywhere around it. It's yeah, it's getting yeah. blasted. Um, I remember it must have been pretty early on. Once you were down, you and I <clears throat> had a quick chat, and we're like, because to reverse the six hour approach we'd done like you know you've done two grade 18 trad climbs you've got to do another trad climb to get back out like you definitely need all four of your limbs working really well 
to reverse what we'd done and yeah, even, were... even the traverse like would be yeah. oh, impossible yeah. Yeah. with you know yeah. broken limbs yeah yeah well we didn't know how bad his injuries were like when he's sitting in there and he's gone unconscious and he's saying that his arm and his back and his head hurts it's like it's pretty full on and confronting you know you're seeing your mate just kind of really in a bad way yeah like a, a rudimentary assessment of him of him chatting to him and then chatting between ourselves was like he's not he's not getting out of it. it's just it's dumb to try and ask him to you know um so yeah i remember us looking at each other and we're kind of like i think we've got to call a heli yeah well <laughs> it was a pretty quick decision taken and that was the minute where i was just i mean i remember when we first said there was an accident and i was just like you've got to be freaking kidding me because i was like i wonder if we've got even rece- um, reception and then i was like man we left the epurb back at the bag which is six hours away I was just like, you got to be shitting me, you know? Like, what are the chances of this happening? And I remember there was a fleeting moment where there was a boat going around the headland shortly after I got to the ledge. Mm. And I seriously could not yell any louder. And I was waving and everything. We were, and all, it was just... we're waving. We had, uh, I had like an orange Gore-Tex. We're all, yeah, we're waving and yelling and going crazy to try and atta- attract the attention of this yacht. Because we figured that we might be able to just lower him down to the shelf and then put him onto the boat and sort of get him out that way. Because I actually did not expect to get reception um, out there. And there was a moment where I was just like, this is going to be so bad. We, We did put him in a space blanket and get him all the down jackets that we had, so... I didn't want to put mine on him because of what he'd done to himself. Yeah. No, but no, we, <laughs> no, I did. Yeah, no, we got him warm and safe and he was anchored. And um, But then you guys would have been freezing, right? Because... Well, Dale was. Because we were a bit buffered. Like, kind of, yes, but you, you're dealing... We were dealing with a situation and to a point, you, you kind of forgot about that as well, you know? So, yeah. I, we Probably had, the we adrenaline. Had, yeah, we had, like, we had Gore-Tex, Gore-Tex on. on to stop the wind yeah. and that. I think that was enough, but, yeah. Um... um so was he, did you say before that he was gaining, going in and out of consciousness? No, no, he was conscious the whole time. Which right. is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He had, I think, at the accident, there was times before we got to him that he went in and out of consciousness mm. in pain. Like, mm. I think, you know, it's the natural way the body deals with sort of some sort of pain management. Mm. Um, but there was definitely times where he would just be like completely non coherent and yeah you know we'd be talking to him and then all of a sudden he'd snap back again and you're like oh that's pretty weird you know and he's like oh yeah okay we're here and then he'd just come up with some golden line and you'd just be like <laughs> yeah he's a, as far as a badly injured dude like he's he's a hilarious human anyway tom but like he was still cracking himself and us up multiple times one of his lines was well, I've never broken a bone before, so I guess this will be a first. What a place to do it. Yeah. And then he was always just going, oh, I'm so sorry, boys. I'm so sorry. I can't believe this is happening. This is not a good thing to be happening. And we're like, dude, it's like... It's totally fine. Yep. So, yeah. But I think getting back to the... We decided on, oh, we're going to have to try and call for a chopper. Um, the boat that came past that we try and signal, we tried to signal it. Like, in the end, they didn't see us. And in the end, we're like, thank goodness, because what we would have tried to do to get him on, like, we would have made it work. But 
in the end, how he was rescued was just like so simple and quick and awesome. Yeah. So yes, mm. it was I definitely a silver lining that you know I that they know. didn't see us. I've not felt like I did when that boat went round the headland, out of sight. I was just like, that was probably our only chance, and I, this huge wave of terror or panic hit me like holy shit what are we actually going to do now and mm. I think you had your watch that had the GPS coordinates and I had my phone I had a, yeah and so so you're on this we were on like the the opposite side where Hobart was of the cape you know so we're on one side Hobart which is miles away is on the other side and there's all these pillars so I was like well I've got to try and dial the emergency number so 112 call kind of got through and dropped out so when I, I had to dial 112 hit the call button stick my arm through to the other side of the cape where it hooked through somehow I still don't know how it did and then like pull the phone back as little as I could to my ear and I think it took three goes because um, it dropped out repeatedly but they put me through to uh, the police headquarters in Tasmania and I actually ended up speaking to the guy that ended up being the winch operator on the helicopter that came out um, and there was a air rescue did a show on us and I think my calls recorded on there if anyone ever wants to hear it but the guy I was talking to was awesome and uh, we're trying to describe where we were and we said Kate Rowell and I think they were like oh wow this is going to be complicated as a rescue um, but yeah describe the situation as best we could I remember him asking do I do you need me to assemble a specialist ropes team and I said, how long will that take? And he said, maybe two hours. And I said, no, I no, I think you'll be right. You know, we've got good anchors. We are a specialist team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we've got it pretty sorted. I, I think you guys will be fine. But it's hard. Like, none of us have ever had a, you know, we're anticipating a winch rescue up a chopper. We'd never been there before. So, yeah, it was all, he was a bit like, all right, I'll trust you. And I was like, I, I think the call's right. And... He said, we'll be there in 45 minutes. And the reality is, even if they did make a rope team, the chances are that they, A, might not be able to get to us, B, would take so long and it'd be dark and the helicopter might not be able to get to us. And, and three, Tom's injuries might not have seen him get that far through the night. So, um, yeah, I think we just made the call. We are pretty firm about that to just be like, Helicopter is the only option here. <clears throat> and get it here as quick as you can. Yeah. So would the the specialist ropes team, would they have come like on foot, essentially done the same approach as you, or would they have been winched down? I think they would have come out on their chopper. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, we don't know. We didn't come to that stage. Yeah. yeah. So I think it was a pretty long wait from the time Tommy's accident actually happened. Probably two hours passed before the helicopter did a flyover. Mm. They spotted us. They signaled to us like, yep, we know where you are. They then must have... Position. They must have gone away and just had a few minutes to think about what like they needed to talk about what they were going to do. And then they came back. And that was actually really impressive. Um, that, the I... skill that they have is insane. There's a there's a couple of um couple of vids online about this and we can shoot you the links if you want to you know post them in the yeah. comments of the podcast or something yeah. but it's quite evident on the video because we're looking up we can hear the chopper because it's you know boom 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 above us and we're like oh they're going to winch the guys down soon 
they came down so fast. I was still attending to Tom. That they went straight past Hank and I, and they were they were reaching out for us, and we just didn't even turn around. Oh. I couldn't believe how quick and accurate they came down. And then one of us were like, "Whoa, they're here already!" and spun round and reached out an arm and got them on. And um, and then they were you know they were on the ledge and. That ledge would have been pretty packed by this time with five yeah, dudes on it. Yep, yep. Yeah, it was getting a little busy. And and to their credit too, like I remember the first guy came down and he didn't know us. He, you know, he's got to detach from the helicopter and obviously attach to our anchors. Well, attach to our anchors first, then detach. And he just looks at us in the eye. He's like, are your anchors good? And we're like, yep. He's like, all right. <laughs> and then, uh, so was Chris down first or Peter? I can't oh, remember. Oh, man. That slipped my mind. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, there was two of them came down. Chris and Peter was the paramedic trained um, rescuer that came down. And yeah, couldn't say enough good things about those guys. They were just so good and calm and collected. And it was so awesome to see Pete just start looking after Tom and give him a proper medical assessment and give him some drugs to ease his pain. And Helicopter left and landed in a clearing that people normally camp out if they're doing pole dancer sometimes mm. um and then i don't know maybe 45 minutes went by while they were sorting tom out and assessing him and giving him some uh, you know painkiller and we were, they were chatting with us too because they brought down a like a sort of fold away stretcher thing they could have put him on because we were because we were worried about his spinal injuries or if he had them maybe um but yeah, Pete kind of made the call that it was just too difficult on the ledge because it was a bit crowded and downsloping. So instead, they just got a, a harness they could kind of take apart and shimmy under Tom and do it all back up again. And um, yeah, it was just it was just all we could do. It was such a tough, small little ledge to try and you know affect this rescue from. And you know, we we're all like, oh, what if he's got spinal injuries or something? And Peter said, I, it's the best we can do. Like, we just have to get him out of here. And we're like, yeah, we, we get it. So Right, so he wasn't even 100% positive that he didn't have any spinal injuries. Yeah. Mm, no, yeah. no. It, he, he had given him a good assessment. Like, he was pretty sure there was nothing chronic with his neck and that kind of things. But, yeah, he wasn't 100% sure. So, yeah, it was a... But, yeah, in hindsight... Um, you know, we all, we all had way more time to think about it afterwards. We're like, yeah, we agree, you know, to try and do anything other than what he did just would have been way too hard given that, that little, little ledge that we were on. I'm curious um, if you uh, had a first aid kit and if you did anything before the paramedic got there. Uh, Who was, we... what's the name of the paramedic? Peter. Peter. Nice mm. one, Peter. Yeah. We always had minimal, like, it's not like a first aid kit you've got at the home or at the office or anything like that. We had a real small first it's, aid. It was mm. a space blanket. We always carried like a space mm-hmm. blanket each, some duct tape, maybe one bandage and a head torch. You know, it's kind of like that's the sort of thing that we would take with us. We'd pair it down over the... It's pretty much, yeah, sport tape will stop bleeding, a bandage will splint stuff and... The pain will suck, but we'll, we'll get yeah. out sort of thing. So, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, no is the answer. We didn't really have a first aid kit, but we had enough to sort of get us by. And mm. Tom's injuries are so bad that any home domestic first aid kit wouldn't have cut it anyway. So mm. And it, I don't know, and I don't know if you guys know about this, but I think there's sometimes a thing where you're not supposed to administer any pain relief until the paramedics get there. 
Yeah, I, th- I don't know. I, I could be wrong. I'll, I'll have to verify that. Yeah, I think they're pretty nervous about you giving them any food and water because it can stop or complicate the surgery if they need them. Um, so we gave him a few sips of water. And to be honest, Tom probably didn't want anything anyway. It was mm. He's dealing with a whole lot of other things. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's just mm. one of those things. I but yeah, they radioed back to the chopper to come pick get up. back into winching position again. And once again, like super accurate drop of that hook. And um, I think Tom went up with Peter first, the paramedic. You could sort of keep an eye on him on that. That sort of windy ride up. Um, yeah, he would have been. They would have been getting smashed mm, on that yeah. ride up. It would have been rough. Yeah, yeah. yeah they, so the chopper pilot's name was Yas, I think, and just phenomenal. Like you know, accurate to within a meter. He's just so good, and he holds he holds that thing just rock steady. That's so, yeah. crazy. What What about when the hook came down? Were you guys all like ducking for cover as it came down? <laughs> No, you're just reaching for it because <laughs> you're like, give me that thing, you know? So they're pretty good with it. Um, oh, yeah. Like the guy who's dropping it down, you know, he, he's guiding it with his hand a bit and he's controlling the speed really carefully. So, yeah, he's not going for 10 points to knock you out or anything like that. <laughs> and then it was pretty anti-climax. Like, yeah, the, Pete and Tom Because we were like, oh, can you just take Dale with you? As in, like, for support for Tommy. Um, and they're like... No. Not really. <laughs> and, you know, I hate to say this, but in our group, Dale was the one that was almost in that shock mode and he's, like, not a strong climber as the rest of us were. And so he was now like, oh, my best mate's just injured uh, and we're going to have to climb out of here and probably in the dark. And I think by the time the helicopter left, it was three or two or three o'clock. I can't remember. It might have been later because I remember we shot a little selfie video wishing him luck in the hospital that we were going to play him later, and it was getting on sunset. So yeah, it might have been six thirty. It looked very. It looked like golden hour. Yeah, Yeah. it was very nice. We finished the climb and the hike out in the dark. I know that because we didn't get back to the hospital in Hobart until two a.m. in the morning. So we actually really didn't know too much. It was such a long time from when the helicopter left to us kind of finding out that Tom was okay or not okay and there's a lot of things playing in our mind. Um, that must just, have been a savage retreat for you, the three of you. Can, yeah, can, well, I, can I just say something? Before, I did joke. Yeah, I was like, we're five minutes from pole dancer. Do you reckon we could just <laughs> send it while we're here? I mean, um, while we were waiting for the helicopter, I was like, it's right there, boys. Like, can we? And uh, You'll be right, Tommy. Yeah. We'll just go grab a quick belay each. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and I rolled that huge rock off the um, the shelf that we thought we were going to have yeah. to take Tom to. There was like another pillar out from the Stegosaurus sort of mm. spine. Uh, but there's a huge rock on there. I like, leave it off and... Man, it smashed into the ocean pretty hard. So. Would it, given those seals the fright of their lives with that, yeah, yeah, that dude, block? Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll have to get that video off you yeah, and put sure. it up on socials. Cause yeah. that... No seals were harmed in the making of the film, thankfully. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but, but you can uh, see how like easily holds would break off. Like That was yeah. some serious, mm. serious rock. I do remember, though, like when Chris, the second um, guy that was down on scene with us, got winched away... And the chopper flew away. It was it was almost like the wind died down a bit, and the three was kind of looking at each other, just going, "Whoa!" Like that was heavy, and it felt like 
just real quiet and not in a bad way, but I remember just feeling like quite alone, like together with the three of us, but we're kind of like, yeah, like... I don't think we talked much for the first five or ten minutes after mm. the helicopter left, just absorbing, processing and trying to work out where we were with things, so, Because, yeah. yeah, like even recounting now, like one of your mates is with you and... Like he's not, he's alive, obviously not that he's gone, but like, yeah, like the four of us head off and there's like, and, and then there were three and with all that went on. Yeah, it was, there was definitely a few minutes of just like processing until we got to, all right, we've got to get out of here now and, and reverse all that we've done. And it must be kind of a weird feeling too, because when you're that remote and you're climbing, you know, obviously you take on this responsibility of looking out for one another and then suddenly your injured friend has just kind of, you know, Vanished into evaporated the into the sky. He's yeah. gone to heaven. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the lucky bugger didn't have to do the six hour reverse the route to get out. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty yeah. convenient, really. <laughs> yeah, he yeah, yeah. yeah, could have yeah. just said he didn't want to go that day. <laughs> yeah. Not usually like that. Yeah. <laughs> so what was, uh, what was that retreat like? Uh, it was quite fine. We... I mean, we've, we've we made the agreement that we were going to double and triple check everyone, mm. and that we weren't going to rush, and that we stayed focused to doing our bit to get out. That was the promise that we made, and I think that you and I just ended up kind of taking charge and sort of doing what we needed to do. Yeah, just to get, get through. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But no, that's true. We're, we're sorry. We're we're super safe, and and also though, like we'd all done a lot of big endurancey days as well you know like being out doing stuff for 10 15 20 hours like we've been there a few times as well and i guess that's a very specific kind of fatigue though isn't it like when you that worried about someone and you're kind of traumatized because they've had a terrible accident and you don't know what their injuries are so mm. like that's really smart to be aware of the fact that you're in you know not an optimal headspace for the yeah. conditions that you're in Honestly, you just got to lock it out. There's nothing that we could have done at that stage to better Tommy's situation. And you've almost just got to shut the door and just be like, that's a mess later. that I'll deal with later. Mm. And then just focus on your, your task at hand, which ours was getting out. Mm. Yeah. I think like looking at some of our selfie videos, because we did some even on the way out. Like I, I think we're all pretty good at that too. Like we're just like, you know, we're, we're pretty sure Tom's in good hands. He's going to the hospital. He's going to be good. Let's just us be safe, concentrate on that and get out of there and say, yeah, I agree with Hank. It wasn't it wasn't really hard to access that headspace of like, all right, let's just get it done as safely as we can. And and really, once we'd done at the start where we said we had to do the abseil because you had to juma back up the rope out. Once we were at the top of that, we were kind of like, it's just walking now. Like no one trip, but you know, we're not... We're not on ropes, hanging off stuff, climbing pitches anymore. We're, we've just got to walk out of here and then, and just kind of stay awake for two hours to to drive back to Hobart, which we and Dale the, called that drive. Yeah, we made the hard calls to call Tommy's parents to let mm -hmm. them know, like late at night, that he'd had an accident and that um, he was okay, but not okay, and to call his um, girlfriend at, at the time, time yeah. you know, to say the same sort of thing was really quite tough and and I think they rang the hospital and they knew more than us you know by the time we got there but they'd found out you know how he was doing and um but yeah we didn't get to the hospital till about I think it was one thirty two, and 
remember we were just cranking tunes and yeah. singing loudly to yeah. stay, stay awake. awake and and keeping ourselves positive as well you know positive hopefully that tommy's injuries weren't too bad i'm like we didn't know but what's so. your total digression what's your trying to stay awake tune I remember we sang, and it's in one of the vids we made, Learning to Fly by the Foo Fighters. I remember we were, we were singing out at the top of our lungs, kind of because the chopper had picked him up. And It's very appropriate. Yeah, 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 yeah. it's super appropriate yeah. at the time. So, yeah. And I, I mean, the I think we got to the hospital, and they were awesome. They actually let us in, which, you know, is probably against protocol after hours, but um, given the situation, it was great to just put our minds to ease. I think by that... You probably looked haggard as well. They were probably oh, like, oh, more yeah. patience. Well, <laughs> it's a pretty unique story as well, I think. Yeah, they uh, knew that they obviously dropped off, um, not by the helicopter, they had to drop him off a kilometre back from the hospital and change him to an ambulance. Uh, I just thankfully had a friend that was a nurse in the hospital as well, so I pulled a couple of um, favours that way as well. All about who you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think we didn't give him an option. I think we just charged in as well yeah. kind of thing. Um, and it turned out that he really destroyed uh, his left elbow pretty badly and mm-hmm. needed surgery to sort of sort that out. Um, he fractured his sacrum and his coccyx yep. like, reasonably badly. But, you know, they healed fine in time. And he had a couple of micro fractures in some vertebrae higher up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what about his, he, his head? He needed new undies. Uh, <laughs> as in his mental state or his... A concussion yeah. or... Uh, no, I think he did pretty well. I mean, his helmet probably saved the brunt of it, um, which was probably a blessing. Uh, yeah, we looked at his helmet later and, yeah, the back of it had definitely taken a hit. So, yeah, yeah. thank goodness for helmets. And yeah. then mental headspace, you know, I was obviously somewhat traumatised and I think... I'd describe him as pretty good, though. Like It he, was pretty good. He, he was strong-willed. He's very fit. He eats very well and always has. And like he walked out of the hospital and came and had a coffee with us the next day with a fractured sacrum and coccyx. And he wasn't, you know, skipping down the street. He was walking gingerly, but we were all like, wow, mate. He had that thing with his lung as well. There was like an air bubble on his lung. Oh, that's right. And then that meant that he couldn't fly. (laughs) So we had all come to the end of our trip a few days later and we were heading home. His girlfriend had flown down thinking, oh, great, we'll just take him home. But they couldn't fly because of this air bubble and his lung might become worse. So he had to lie flat in the passenger's side of the rental car to the ferry. Then they put him on a special bed in the ferry and then they drove all the way from the ferry to home Queensland. to Brisbane. Oh like all, the, all the guy didn't want to do was sit down <laughs> and he had yeah. to, you know... The drive back to Queensland. The ethic never ends. Yeah. Eh? Yeah. My yeah. God. So uh, just getting back to him shitting his pants. Yeah. Uh, because everybody wants to know. Yeah. <laughs> so who had to change his pants? Would that have been an unfortunate oh, no, nurse? We, that yeah. Was, yeah, that was a hospital. Yeah. We, didn't have to, yeah, we, we just checked. <laughs> I mean, I can't remember. Did they take the space? Yeah, because we took him out of the space blanket. And they had a disposable waste bag that we put it in and thankfully mm. sent that off with it. Hazmat him. bag yeah. or whatever, yeah. Yeah, so that was pretty handy. And the down jackets, were they all good or...? Uh, yeah, no, the jackets were all good, yeah. Thank God, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, when he was winched up into the chopper, I think it was all sort of... It was still with him, largely, you know? So, yeah, it was mostly the hospital's problem. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I remember we did wash our jackets. Got to, <laughs> got, got to. to. 
Yeah, yeah. you're welcome, Tommy. You're welcome, mate. <laughs> yeah, that's see, that's a part of a uh, a relationship that yeah. they don't tell you about early on that you might uh, have to check someone's pants to yeah. see if they've shit themselves after a big fall. Totally, totally. <laughs> so, uh, you know, having had this experience, um, you know, obviously a lot of it's just bad luck. Like you, it's unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, holds breaking not always easy to predict that that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And when you're doing a route for the first time, you know, sometimes you're going to go the wrong way. Um, But is there anything you kind of have changed about your system since then? Like, oh, actually, that's what I meant to ask you. Did you have head torches? I know you said you had one in the first aid kit. Yeah, we We always always have one Mm. each, yeah. Mm. What Uh, about the first aid kit? Like, would you put more stuff in there or would it not really have helped? I don't think I've changed my, my no. first aid sort of. I'm still the same. It's, it's really mm. difficult because part of the the trap or the danger is by taking all the stuff, it slows you down, which puts you in a more potential to either spend the night out or that you've got to carry more and then you may have an accident because you're fatigued and tired. So there's always this fine line between super safe and prepared and marginally on the line of mm, we've got enough to get us by, but probably not. And as and I think it's probably also fair to say like the four of us have done a lot of stuff together. So the first aid kit that we would take as a group of four, or Hank and I, or Hank and I and Duncan, would be different to if I was climbing with someone else that I hadn't climbed with as much. You know, so that and specific what we would to take the adventure too might change at times as well. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. We, um, my partner and I, Andrew and I, um, put our PLB in our first aid kit yep. just as a little, you know, yeah. fun mm. tip. I don't know if that's yeah. something you guys have ever done or. Yeah. I know. think that we're a bit more conscious about taking the emergency yeah, positioning. Yeah. Thing I, I think yeah. there's been one with yeah. us on every adventure yeah. since for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, the other crazy thing is, is that you and I had booked the for wilderness the wilderness first, first aid course. <laughs> Two days after we came back, back from Tassie, yeah. <laughs> and I remember just not loving life. I was had a few personal things going on, and I was like, almost, no, nah, I'm not doing it. But you remember, you go to a, a first aid course, and classic, everyone's like, introduce yourselves. You know, has anyone had anything happen recently they want to share? <laughs> you know, I want to talk about it too yeah. soon. <laughs> yeah, and it was, totally. it, I was like dead set, sitting at the back of the class, like my killer death stare do not talk to me about accidents today and then eventually i don't know like they kind of got it out of us and what well, was it? i mean yeah the, a few days later a digression the course was full of really really nice people and everyone had heard the story in a few days for sure but but yeah it was yeah, it was a bit too soon yeah. right at the start of the course i'm curious did you learn anything in that course i would really like to do one did you learn anything in that course that would have do you think would have been a game changer or would have helped you out i think I think everyone who's going into our sort of realm of outdoor activities should highly consider doing a wilderness first aid. The skill set and the knowledge you can gain from doing one of those is unreal. Hopefully you never have to use it. Mm. Um, But I don't think there was much we would have learned in that situation to better it. If we had to transport Tommy somehow, then maybe we could have used some of these techniques, but... You know, a lot of them revolve around having more equipment 
or the access to sticks to splint stuff or whatever and mm. you know is the ability to just monitor and maintain a casualty until help arrives it's so mm. what yeah. kinds of techniques do you learn out of curiosity in a wilderness first aid course oh so much anything from like punctures like you know serious wounds and how to, to manage them stress burns any fractures I'd say one of the big things they taught us was um, assessment, like a, a much better assessment. If you had to speak to a paramedic on the phone, you'd be able to give them, at the end of the course, you would be able to give them better information at the start of the course, you know. Mm-hmm. Check, checking for bleeding and ways to check, you know, a, a bit of spinal stuff, like rudimentary. So, you know, we, we could have done a bit more of that for Tom, but it wouldn't have changed how we had to get him out of there because it was just definitely one of the most insane places you could get injured, you know, and and not be able to walk or move. Um, but I agree with Hank, that, that course was awesome. And I think the good thing about a week-long course is you just get to do so many scenarios. They just slam you through so many scenarios. It really sinks that knowledge in. And it's it's actually scenario-based. That They'll set up some victims with or casualties with certain injuries, and you're just thrown into the deep end like, can okay. I can I just say that must have been so traumatic right after the experience that you had? Oh, no, it was, I don't know whether it's how we process things. For me, it was it was awesome. It was, right. it was just like, wow, this is really good usable knowledge. And yeah, um, or maybe it was therapeutic. I don't know. Maybe we're good at compartmentalizing. I don't know, but maybe. yeah, it was yeah. just. But no, it was it was a really good course. No, it didn't, it didn't feel traumatic. It was more like this is useful and yeah, glad we're doing it. And I agree. Like anyone that's going out sticking themselves out in the wilderness doing adventures is well worth doing a course. Yeah. And probably the other comment too was, yes, we carry EPIRBs or PLBs, personal locator beacons now. Um, if you've got the ability to, to use your phone, like to be able to talk to someone to plan that rescue was gold. I think yeah. for the helicopter people as well, if they had have just had a flashing beacon out on that cape, we they might, might have got rescued till the next day. Thought like, that we were a boat, you know, that's crashed up onto the mm. side or anything. So, yeah. So um, like, if you've got no phone reception, like for sure hit it. But if if you could sort of fight to get some reception, so you can talk to someone to let them know information, that information transfer, I think, contributed to the rescue happening in forty five minutes instead of hours or the next day potentially. Because they, if they would have flown out and seen it, they might have you know, freaked out and not knowing what to do straight away until they made a plan, which which would have taken a lot longer. So Yeah, that is actually a good point to mention that PLB is sort of your last resort, yeah. you know, if you oh, don't yeah. have any phone reception because mm. then you can't talk to a human. Yeah. Um, one thing, Hank, that you mentioned before that I just want to get you to flesh out a little more is, um, yeah, that, that decision-making of um, going fast and light versus taking more gear, potentially being slowed down. How do you make those decisions for particular expeditions that you go on? Or do you just kind of always go fast and light? No. Uh, I think it comes with experience and exposure. Uh, If you had seen my pack when I first started hiking when I was younger, you would have been like, what the hell are you going for 15 days, mate? You know, and I think you just realize pretty quickly as you get home, you're like, oh, I didn't use X or and I didn't use Y, so I don't need that. Or you find ways 
to use certain equipment in multiple different ways. Um, and I think that that's how you cut it down, you know, in terms of, you know, that there's a good chance that layering is better so you can change clothes uh, and you don't have to take, you know, one massive down jacket. You'd take a skinny down jacket and some sort of polar fleece or something like that. And um, just even the equipment that we would use for climbing, we would use, I've got rope slings that I can use as a prussic. So it's like it's a fully rated sling that's got a sewn splice, uh, um, sewn termination on it. Um, but it's rated as the same as a sling. So it's like if I needed to, I got that as an emergency backup. And just looking at the gear that you have and refining every single time. We'll it, have to post an image of what that is. Yeah, um, okay. Set up yeah. and onto the socials yep. so people can see. Yeah. Um, and I think it just comes down to to time in the saddle, you know, in terms of or time in the harness in that the better that you or the more that you go out, the more you're not certain of the outcome, but you're definitely backing yourself more and more that, okay, well, I know that I can climb 25, so an 18 shouldn't be that hard. So you, you know, you either run it out or you don't take as much gear or um, you just learn that in the mountains that there's a lot of times your mind throws all these scenarios at you like, oh, what if this happens? What if that happens? The chances of those actually happening are pretty slim. And if it did happen, the stuff that you have, you would improvise if you can think outside the, the box. It box sounds like friends. it was one of those situations, and I said this to you before we started recording, where even though it all went wrong, it was kind of the best possible outcome. Like you had phone reception, you could talk to people, they did a flawless rescue, you know, yep. almost given the worst case scenario, best case scenario. Um, what was the recovery like for Tom? Oh, like very good. Like I said, you know, a fit, healthy, I don't know what he was, late 20s, I think at the time and eats impeccably and he was a perfect rehab student. Uh, he recovered really quickly. He, I think he climbed a 28 later that year i think that was in january we did it and it might have been august or september yeah, i think for his birthday i think something wasn't it no, it was a bit it was a little bit later than that i think but not much later mm. yeah so wow. he, he he made a really, really good recovery and mm. um yeah it was actually surprising how well he recovered we mentally headspace wise climbing like fine like he was we we, was we had a fine. moment i remember yeah when we went and did uh blade ridge um which is where? In Tassie. Um, I started climbing up this shitty, mossy, sort of exposed thing and we scissor paper rock for who went first. I won slash hoped that that was the case. So, um, And then he came to the blade and he's like, oh yeah, bro, this is the first time I've done trad since the accident. So just keep, me, <laughs> keep, keep an eye on me a bit, you know? And I was like... Damn. <laughs> All right. So yeah, uh, that was ass. yeah, that was that was pretty cool. That you know that was his first time back and trad and you know, know like that. I don't That's think cool. it. I think he worked hard on his mental game. I think that you know having an accident where you fall or hurt yourself, um, always will play in the back of your mind like what if. But he definitely came back better and stronger. Mm. Yeah, I don't think if I threw myself off a ledge, I would be climbing 28s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
speaking of pole dancer, the start of last year, um, Hank was overseas, unfortunately, and I was down in Tassie with um, Tom and Dale, and we had a chat with Hank, and we're like, oh, the weather's really good. Like, do you mind if we go do it? Because we've got a chance to, and and you were awesome. We're going to go do it maybe this maybe this summer, mate. But um, yeah, so the three of us went back, unfinished business, and and did it. And freaky story, we're, we're driving out from Hobart to go to the car park to go do pole dancer, and my mum texts me, and she's like, oh, wow, like, freaky timing. It's the exact same date. And we're like, whoa, <laughs> we, we hadn't planned that or anything. And But, yeah, we had a really super successful, it all went smooth day, um, you know, exactly four years to the date, you know, later. And, um, and we applied the same thing we did on getting out that day. We, like, took our time and were super careful and nailed the approach. And um, and I can attest to it's probably the best 22 in the country, pole dancer. It's, it's awesome. Such a cool position. We're all super close mates. But, yeah, Tom, Tom's always had an ability to process life in general really well. And, you know, however he runs his life internally, he, he definitely, I agree, worked hard to recover and, and I think he just processes these things really well. So, yeah, no, kudos to him. He, he was amazing. He recovered super well. And what about you guys? Yeah. I, I don't recall. We, we chatted about it a lot, you know, so I don't recall having any lasting effects from it. But maybe that's because, in hindsight now, is like, you know, Hank and I chat a lot. We, we chatted with Tom and Dale, and we probably debriefed a lot straight after it. But even you know, weeks and months after we'd chat about it again. And so I don't, I don't recall having anything to get past, but maybe that's because any healing kind of took place just because we were chatting so much. You know, I did have a little bit of, you know, I don't know what the word might be, but I felt guilty that Tom injured himself and that, you know, maybe the responsibility was on me as the probably the most experienced person in the group and I know that um before we left we must have had a dinner with Tom's parents and I remember looking um Tom's parents in the eyes and saying that I'll totally take care of him and that'll be fine and I remember when they came to the um the hospital I was like a bit sheepish and like I'm like really sorry I didn't mean for this to happen and I promise that I'll get your son back to you know good health again so yeah Yeah, we didn't really talk about that at the start but you two were sort of the most experienced or the more experienced people in the party right probably climbing oh and equal with tom he was just unfortunately the guy that injured himself but yeah climbing wise yeah yeah i would say so and um actually that you do bring up one thing i know part of the debriefing was like did we do anything wrong like could we have done it better and and um we're all, yeah, and Tom was included in those chats too. You know, we're like, maybe we didn't if feel like we comments. did much. Yeah, no, wrong. This is this is like a whole other podcast episode topic that I'm kind of digressing into, but it's something that I have noticed about climbers is that um, we kind of have a bit more of an awareness, whether it's conscious or not, of mental health, and like people are more kind of upfront and willing to talk about stuff, willing to self-reflect and, you know, take responsibility or take accountability and apply, you know, lessons to future expeditions, um, which I think is really interesting. I think that that also covers off um, 
in life in general as well is that um, you're exposing yourself to so much risk and you know the other person so well that you trust them with your life that um, I know it's not that common for, for guys to talk about emotions and feelings and those sorts of things but you know the the three boys um tommy dale and jade on that event you know we talked about our feelings quite a lot i know that um the same happens with uh duncan and i we can be quite open and honest about it i mean you know i've, I've seen poo and we and you know slept in weird places and done crazy things with them so i think the boundaries are dropped down and we can be quite honest and i think that's pretty nice sort of thing with that outdoor sort of industry that we can open up and share quite a lot Mm, yeah i would love to talk more about that another story for another time (laughs) jade and hank thank you so much for having a chat yeah no worries thanks for coming and asking us about the day Thanks for listening to The Bail List. This is episode 10, y'all. We're up in the double digits now, which is very exciting. Check out our amazing supporters on the socials at Wild Earth Australia and at Awesome Woodies. Follow us on social media as well, at The Bail List on Facebook and Instagram. I want to hear from you. Reach out if you've got a fail, bail or epic to share or drop a question or comment. Just say hello. I'll have another spicy yarn for you next month. Until then, make good choices and have fun. Hold up. 